Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we're talking about Texas. Yes, Texas. And is this going to be the year that Texas finally elects a Democrat? It hasn't happened in, in a million years. But maybe this is the candidate to do it. Our guest is Christina Sinsoon Ramirez. She is running for Senate in Texas as a progressive. Remember, Beto Roark couldn't win running against Ted Cruz as a progressive. Can she? She explains how she's going to do it, how impeachment's going to affect her race, and what's her path to victory. And here's my conversation with Christina Sinsoon Ramirez. Christina Sinsoon Ramirez, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're, you're here for fundraising reasons, of course. Many fundraising, people. meeting people. Meeting, yeah. <laughs> okay. And and now you're running for Senate in Texas, and I think every couple of years, especially Democrats in California, other progressive areas, get suckered into thinking, this is the year that Texas actually elects a Democrat statewide, and it never happens. Why is it going to happen this year? It's going to happen this year. So Texas or is next year. I should say. So we're, we got within two point six percentage points of flipping Texas in twenty eighteen. Um, You're speaking of the Beto race. Yeah, I'm speaking of the Beto race, and then we're having a general election where we're going to see even greater Democratic turnout. When you had someone like John Cornyn run the last go around, Texas was a very different place. Republicans have won in our state with a minority of voter participation. They've been happy to govern without a mandate, but that is dramatically changed. Now we've had, we've gone up in the number of people participating. Our state is one in three eligible voters in Texas are under the age of 30. Um, We are a majority people of color state. Um, And there has always been a long streak of economic populism in our state. And so my campaign is running a real get out the vote operation. We know that we win when we get out a diverse coalition of voters, but also when we get out young and Latino voters. And I was asked to run by some of our largest progressive institutions and folks that ran Beto's Senate race because everyone knows that I'm the person that's done the best at getting out young and Latino voters in Texas. And we'll get to that in a second, your, your background and, and, and the organizations you've started. Uh, now, Beto Rourke, uh, three-term congressman, he couldn't beat Ted Cruz. Now, Ted Cruz, uh, this this is basically, this next riff is basically an excuse to use, his, use all these things that people mean things people say about Ted Cruz. One of the most hated people in the Senate. This is a quick refresher on Ted Cruz. This is from Lindsey Graham. If you killed Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate and there was a trial and then the trial was in the Senate, nobody would convict you. (laughs) John Boehner, these these are Republicans, former Republican House Speaker said, Cruz is a quote, miserable son of a bitch. And then perhaps my favorite. uh, Oh, there's more. Yeah, there's one more. This is Al Franken. Uh, deposed a Democratic senator. He says, I like Ted Cruz more than most of my colleagues, and I hate Ted Cruz. (laughs) So if you can't be Ted Cruz, how can you be Cornyn, who's kind of much more, you know, benign figure? in Texas is that John Cornyn actually has lower favorability ratings in our state than Ted Cruz does. Really? How can that be possible? Everyone says, how is it possible to be more disliked than John Cornyn, than Ted Cruz? And Here's where I think we miss the point as progressive sometimes. we Yes, we don't like uh, Ted Cruz. And even people in his own party don't like Ted Cruz. But he has a very loyal mm-hmm. uh, 
base in Texas, he invokes passion on both sides of the aisle. Well, John Cornyn is actually much more powerful than Ted Cruz. You're talking about one of the most powerful senators in the Republican Party. So maybe he doesn't invoke passion on our side, but we actually taking him out is a much more substantial gain and win for the country and for progressives than taking out Ted Cruz. You describe yourself as a progressive, but I'm a Texas progressive. Explain what that means, because here in California, you know, we're way out there. Yeah. Well, so, you know, um, my I grew up in a very progressive home. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom's the oldest of nine kids from Mexico. My dad's a white American hippie. Um, you describe yourself as a McMexican. A McMexican, a purebred Irish Mexican-American, <laughs> if you've ever met one. You know, so I grew up in a very progressive household, but I also grew up in between one world that was like my dad learned everything he knew from books. And then my mom learned everything she knew from lived experience of being poor brown woman. And so um, I've done progressive work in Texas for the last decade and a half. I know there is no lefty choir to preach to. There are only a bunch of non-believers to convert. And that's the kind of progressive work I love doing. What you have to understand in Texas, there's a long streak of economic populism that runs through our state. And if you look at issues also like raising the minimum wage, we think of those as progressive issues. But some key Republican states, when it's been put on the ballot, have voted to raise the minimum wage. When you talk about things like should you be able to go to the doctor if you're sick and everyone have good health care – I find that people that don't see themselves as lefty progressives out here like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders folks agree that that is a basic principle that we should all have great health care in this country. And when I explain how the Green New Deal makes the most sense for Texas to be leading the charge and supporting it because we have the most to lose or gain um, because we have a huge oil and gas economy. But yeah, we have 250,000 workers in the oil and gas industry, but 233,000 workers and the advanced energy sector, which is wind and solar, making green batteries. And that's going to soon outpace the oil and gas sector. So the Green New Deal makes sense for Texas because it means we're not going to leave any oil and gas worker behind. Why wouldn't I support that as a Texan? And you support, even though that there's a, a, a guaranteed jobs provision in the Green New Deal, do you, are you support the full, full support it in full? Um, I support the resolution of the Green New Deal, and that's why it's really important. It's saying we're not going to leave those workers behind, especially in the oil and gas sector. And in Texas, the oil and gas sector is not monolithic. There are companies um, that know they need to transition and are investing significant resources to make that transition. Um, I think we need a national focus to support them to do that, Um, real federal investment to make that happen. And then if there are companies that want to hoodwink the American public – and lie and say that climate change is not real, that the catastrophic consequences are not here or about to be here, then we will leave those corporations behind. But we will not leave American workers behind. You, you alluded to uh, health care a couple minutes ago. Um, the um, Texas is the highest rate of um, uninsured, medic- uninsured people in the country. 17.7% of Texas residents, about 5 million people have no health coverage. You support Medicare for all. Why is that? So... You know, I don't, I don't just support Medicare for all because it's one of the most popular policies in the country. I think if you look at the fact that by letting private health insurance companies profit off of our pain, our suffering and illness, we've created not only the most expensive healthcare system in the world, but one with some of the worst outcomes of any industrialized nation for our people. Hmm. By any measure, that's a failed system. I want the most efficient way, the most cost-effective way to provide the best quality health care for every single American. I believe it's a fundamental right mm-hmm. um, that every single American should have access to. Um, and it's why I support it. And you know what I find? If I ran 
several small nonprofits, and I always made sure we paid 100% of the premium for our employees. Let me tell you how 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 much fun it wasn't going through every year the health insurance plans and trying to compete with much larger nonprofits that could provide better health insurance. So when I talk to entrepreneurs or small business owners, for them it would be a huge equalizer to have Medicare for all. It would allow people to go out and start businesses without having to worry about whether they're going to be able to provide health insurance health care for their employees or for themselves. So I see it as a way to actually increase innovation and enterprise in our country. Um, and but, I don't think that Japan and Germany and these other countries are any smarter or better than us. I just think that they've cared more for their people than our elected officials have. And, and you correctly allude that it is a it, it is one of the most popular programs around. But when you polls also say that when you tell people, well, you're going to have to give up your public your, your private health insurance, which what 160 million people have, um, that becomes less popular. Do you what happens to private insurance under your vision of the future? Can you, can you keep your private insurance? I believe that the best system would be one that where we don't have private health insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's why I believe it for two reasons. How do, one, we, how do we get there, though? Yeah. Well, there's two reasons why I believe it's the best system. One, because when we have a system that we're all bought into, we make sure it works for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about one of the few public benefits in this country that is not based on income, Social Security. Well, every time it comes under attack, we all fight to protect it and defend it. But you look at something like Obamacare um, or other programs that are just based on income, then we don't actually fight to protect it. Um, We racialize it. We make those programs about immigrants, about people of color, instead of about actually these are in the best interests of everyone to have these kinds of benefits. Um, And the second reason I'm for it is because I, I simply believe if you look at Medicaid, you know, Medicaid is a program for low-income people, but it is not on par with other programs. And it's not on par with other programs because certain doctor's offices will deny receiving it. It's substandard care. I don't want substandard care for anyone in this country. I want quality care for everyone. And I think that that's how we get there is through Medicare for All. And so would there be a transition period? Uh, Warren has readjusted her program recently. Is, uh, Bernie Sanders is at four years. Warren says, well, we'll look, look at it in a couple of years, two or three years. Um, other people say uh, you can, you, you know, you can buy into the program if you want. How would you? How long would the phase-in be? Would do you, or, or do you subscribe to the Sanders bill that's in the Senate right now? So, this is an important debate we're having, um, and it's a debate that's going to continue once I'm in the Senate. I know that I'm going to fight for Medicare for all on the timeline that I believe will be the most effective, that will be in the best interest of the American people. But I will be fighting for Medicare for all because I believe it's the best system. So do you have a timeline in mind, though? You, you know, it's something that we're still exploring, okay. um, but I'm going to be fighting for Medicare for all. That is what I believe is in the best interest of the American people and for their health. Do you, um, let's, let's talk about some of you alluded to being a small business owner. You, right when you were in, in college, you went to University of Texas in Austin. You're an Austin person, correct? I am an Austin like, person. Are you keeping Austin weird? Isn't that the, I am keeping thing? Austin weird, okay. even okay. though I think they said that Bethel was going to make everyone in Texas, Ted Cruz said, have pink hair and eat tofu. Tofu is pretty healthy, you know. So that was his, I don't, that so doesn't sure, seem like only, a bad existence to me. I just That's, can only imagine what they're going to say about me because I yeah. actually live in Austin. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, tell us about when you're in, at, at Texas, you started an organization there. Are you correct? I've, yeah, I started two nonprofits in Texas. Tell us about them. So um, I've spent a decade and a half leading some of our state's largest voting and civil rights organizations. The first organization I started was when I was 24 years old and I was an undergrad full time at UT Austin. 
great time to start an organization. I say sarcastically. You're overly ambitious. Yeah. But I started, yes, overly ambitious because we decided (laughs) to start an organization to take on one of the most powerful special interest groups in the state, um, which in Texas is the construction industry, one of the largest contributors to the Republican Party, also happens to be the largest employer of undocumented labor. So half of the people in our state who build our schools, our homes, our offices, do so without protection, do so without documentation. And I started out being an interpreter at legal clinics where workers would come in and they hadn't been paid for their work after working on May developments that were worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, And then also seeing workers that would be injured on the job and even seeing workers killed. So in Texas, every two and a half days, a construction worker is killed in our state on the job. It's the highest rate of any state in the country. And nearly all of those workers are foreign born. And so my organization not only uh, developed great legal systems and clinics and with volunteer attorneys to protect workers at an individual level, but help pass legislation at the state and local level and also brought in the federal government to investigate um, and start moving forward initiatives to decrease the high rate of death and injury in the construction industry. And it taught me a lot about how you can make government work for ordinary people. Um, so while I like to say while John Cornyn was accepting millions of dollars from the construction industry, I was making $43,000 a year representing people who lost their limbs and lives building our state's economy. And then you started something a couple of years ago called JOLT, J-O-L-T. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, the week before, the week after the 2016 election, after I stopped crying. Um, <laughs> a whole week of crying? I, I was, there was a wow. lot of tears. There's a lot Man. of tears. All right. um, And so um, pulled myself out of bed and then launched this organization called JOLT. I was six months pregnant at the time. Wow. To mobilize young Latino voters. So it was terrifying. I had $5,000 I had raised. The idea of starting a whole new organization while being six months pregnant. But it seemed much more terrifying to sit on the sidelines and do nothing under Mm -hmm. a Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew I have long believed that if you change Texas – you change the rest of the country, that you can defeat the politics of hate from one of the most red states um, that's actually one of the most diverse in the country. Mm-hmm. And I believe so much of that power lies with young people in our state, lies with a diverse electorate. Um, and so this organization grew from you know, a very small concept and to be a huge political force in our state. Um, now has offices in Austin, Houston, and Dallas, chapters across Texas, um, helped form something called the Texas Youth Power Alliance that registered one in five voters in Texas in 2018 um, and got nearly 70 percent of them out to vote. It is our intention to win the Latino community at that organization, the power and respect they deserve from one of the most red uh, hardline states that's anti-immigrant and anti-Latino. How much of the uh, of, uh, O'Rourke's success in 2018 was him and how much of it was the organization of, of the work that you were doing. I mean, Beto had huge success. He ran an incredible campaign. Um, what I think is important and what I see in my campaign as well, that no candidate wins by themselves. There has to be massive infrastructure that's been being built, and there has been infrastructure being built in Texas, progressive infrastructure, over the last decade and a half, from my organization to incredible organizations like Texas Organizing Project, Move Texas, and Texas Freedom Network, these organizations that have been long-term grassroots organizations that have been getting to scale and now mobilizing and talking to, you know, anywhere from half a million to like 800,000 voters. Um 
when you only have 1.5 million people vote in a primary, that's pretty significant yeah. in our state. Yeah. Um, but Beto ran an incredible campaign, and I think he ran an incredible campaign because in our state, people have been told to run Republican light. And he ran as the most progressive candidate I've ever seen running in Texas. And he ran also embracing the state's diversity. He, you know, as a child of an immigrant, he was the first Democratic candidate that I felt like wasn't selling out my community, that um, respected our contribution to the state's economy and to our cultural contributions. And he also embraced the Black Lives Matter movement, stood up against police brutality. That is completely new in Texas. And I mm. think that's how he gained a lot of momentum in his race. Do you think it? he was at somewhat of a, a um, I don't want to say disadvantage, but was was it holding him back among uh, people of color that he was a white guy, even though he spoke fluent Spanish and he and he had all those stances? Did you that, know, did I that, think that play into it at all. Um, you know, I don't. What I saw was that Beto was a candidate that understood and embraced the state's diversity. Um, I think there were things they needed to do better, but generally speaking, they ran a pretty damn perfect campaign in Texas. And you don't come as far as he did, as fast as he did, without running an incredible campaign. We'll have more of my conversation with Christina Tsinsun Ramirez after this break. And now, more of my conversation with Christina Tsinsun Ramirez. The other thing about Texas that uh, we know is that they love their Second Amendment. You love your Second Amendment. You're, you're actually, you know, you're familiar with a gun from what I understand, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. the best shot in my family. We grew up shooting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Are you a gun owner now? I was up until recently, and then I had my little boy, and I decided I didn't want a gun. You get, it, get it out of the house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you are, uh, you want the universal background checks. You um, you want to buy back assault ref, uh, weapons like AR-15s, AK-47s. Um how do you how do you sell that in Texas? Is that how what are you doing to to, you know, Beto got in trouble when he said, uh, quote, Americans who own AR-15s and AK-47s will have to sell them to the government. All of them. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I graduated the year of the Columbine shooting. Mm-hmm. 1999, correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the shooting happened. Well, I graduated 2000, so okay. I was in 99. Yeah, it was yeah. my senior year. You're all right. It was my senior year. So you could identify with those kids. Yeah. So, you know, I graduated that year, and I've been waiting my entire adult life to see Congress act and do very basic things like pass universal background checks, ban assault-style weapons. And instead, we've been teaching a generation of children to learn how to play dead in their classrooms. Like That seemed to our legislators like the more logical solution. I believe in doing the very basic things that we hope maybe, maybe some Republicans will agree with like universal background checks. But I believe where Democrats have also failed us at times is not fighting for and standing up for what they know is in the best interest of the American people, policy solutions that we have seen work in other countries. I made a promise as someone who has not held political office or run before, but has been involved in politics and public policy for a long time, that I would always tell voters exactly where I stand on every single issue, why I stand on these issues. And if I'm learning or contemplating or, you know, you just asked me about Medicare for All and I gave you an answer. I'm still reviewing what that's going to look like for my policy. I think that we are disingenuous with voters, that we do not fight for what we believe is in their best interest. And then we don't tell them where we stand. So with me, you will always know where I stand. Maybe some voters won't agree with me, but they will know why I stand where I stand. Um, and that policymaking is also a negotiation process. Um, but I'm always going to start at the place that I believe is in the best interest to keep our 
children, our families, and communities safe, and especially in Texas, where we just have had four of the last most deadly mass shootings have happened in our state. We've seen up close right. the real tragic consequences of so inaction. Do, do you think Republicans, where, where can they, where can you meet with them on that? Or where can they meet with you, I should say, about that? Um, would it be the universal background checks? Where do you think that's the, the, the lowest hanging fruit there is? Obviously, there's some low hanging fruit. But again, I, I, am of, I am of the belief that Democrats have failed sometimes because we have been willing to only say what we believe and that we believe other Republicans will agree with. Mm. Um, I think you can still pass those basic common sense things that they're at least willing to admit make some sense, like red flag laws for mm-hmm. um, issues of domestic violence. But I believe we should also stand up and say, we believe this is in the best interest and work towards the policy solution we think will actually work. Um, the other thing that's very popular in Texas that isn't here in California is President Trump. Uh, his approval. I would, well, yes, in California, is, but yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to California. Well, he's, he's a pr- plus. You're like, you're like I'm going to pr- compare Berkeley and Dallas, <laughs> Texas, or Lubbock. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, the, the tr- Trump is up. Uh, his approval, latest I saw, Morning Consult had like uh, he was up plus three. I think other things. He's he's kind of, you know, it's uh, it's actually flatter than I thought. His approval rating is a that is bit, right. Yeah, I was I was a little bit surprised. And of um, the state major states that are swing states, he has one of the, or considered like new swing states. Yeah. Uh, he has one of the lowest approval ratings. How does impeachment affect the campaign? Um, you know, there's been many uh, more conservative uh, Democrats saying. Well, I don't know if we should impeach. This could be blowback. This will turn out his base. You know, get the, them exercised. How do you think it will affect the Senate race there? So, what's important to know about Texas is that Trump, for my voters, so Texas has a state. We are people often say we're not a red state. We're not a blue state. We've been a non-voting state. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned before, Republicans have been completely happy and tickled to death to have a minority of voters participating because they know that if there was actually, if they had to win with a mandate, they may not be able to do so in our state. So most voters, in my experience, are not necessarily even paying attention to what's happening with impeachment. Um, For example, a huge portion of the population doesn't even know who John Cornyn is in our state. Wow. Um, What's that like? I think it's like 35, 40%, something like that. And he's been in for how many terms now? Oh, you know, almost 20 years. Yeah. 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 It's like 18 years. But um, so he's been there a little bit of time. So most Texans, in my experience, and the voters that I want to appeal to are worried about their day-to-day lives. Um, And they want to see people that are willing to stand up and fight for them and know what they go through. So- Sometimes I think people are making political calculations that are inaccurate. And on impeachment, what I see is that by the own, our own president's words, the transcripts, um, you know, and the different uh, witnesses we've had, that he has acted uh, in a way that is criminal, that in a way that it definitely meets high crimes and misdemeanors, that he should be impeached and that we should always <laughs> act in the best interest of the American people, that it's more than a president, then it's more than a party, it's more than an election, mm-hmm. but it's our entire democracy on the line. And I think that when you explain that to the American public, especially Democrats and new voters, they are more outraged, I find, by Democrats' lack of action um, and willingness to take these political calculations that don't actually act in their best interest. So you don't think it's going to affect the race? Oh, I think it will definitely affect the oh, race in, in different way? ways. Um 
you know, I think that this is going to be Republicans are going to try and play and rally around this. But I think Democrats, had they not acted, this is where I say there's a political miscalculation. Had Democrats not acted to impeach, you would have seen so many Democrats and progressives across the country just outraged by their inaction. Yeah. They did the right thing by acting. Um, and they did the th right thing by acting because it was in, again, the best interest of our Constitution to protect the interests of the American people. And that should always be our motivator. Speaking of the presidential race, uh, 2016, you you knocked on doors for Bernie Sanders. Are you backing Senator Sanders this time or have you are you leaving your options open? Where are you at? Where are you, you know, if in? you look at so I knocked on doors for Bernie Sanders and then I worked really hard and then I made phone calls and was at the AFL-CIO building in D.C., two days before the election, making calls to my home state of Ohio. Oh, you're, you're born I was Ohio. born in Ohio. Yeah, I, was. I, was, I lived in the perfect trifecta, which is Ohio, Texas, and Mexico is how I grew up. So, wow. yeah. yeah, it's been great. And, you know, making phone calls for Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. um, and I got everyone in my family that I could to go vote for her because I saw the threat of uh, the Trump administration. If you look at my policies, they most align with someone like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Julian Castro. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I haven't determined yet who I'll vote for, but I imagine it will be one of those three. Okay. Do you think the the let me ask you? We're going to have a, when we're recording this, um, a couple of days. There's going to be a debate, and um, there will be one person of color on the debate stage. Uh, that's Andrew Yang. Uh, uh, Cory Booker said there's going to be more billionaires than black people on the stage, but one to zero. Um, do you think number one? Do you think? Uh, Women have the female candidates have been treated fairly in this campaign by the media, by the political establishment. And do you think people of color have? You know, I think that there I was really proud. You know, I remember I wrote that I wrote this piece that I didn't actually end up publishing in 2016 about how. You know, we were that. Yes, I was glad that there was a woman running for president. But what mattered to me also more than anything was their policies. And that if we looked at the Republican side, they had two children of immigrants. They had an African-American running and a woman. We didn't have that slate of diversity. So I'm proud that we're actually having a slate of diverse candidates that reflect the lived experiences of millions of people in this country. And I think it also comes down to where they stand on the policies that really matter to the American people. I want us to see how we can change the rules to reflect better the debate we have in the party um, uh, about like who gets to stand on the debate stage and why, um, what kind of threshold we create. Um, because I do think that, you know, Cory Booker's statements are accurate and problematic for the Democratic Party. And then lastly, I will say is there's also been a blackout. Um, when you ask me about female candidates, I'm really concerned that there's a blackout on MSNBC and numerous other um, channels and shows of Bernie Sanders. You know, there was just <laughs> one where it was Biden and Bernie number, you know, one and two. And then Elizabeth Warren, number three. And then they just said Biden and Warren leading. Um, so I'm concerned also about the lack of representation in the media of the diverse ideas in the Democratic Party. You're, you're a turnout expert um, uh, for the organizations you've led. Um, will this affect the image of, uh, you know, a, a, a debate so white hashtag? Uh, will that affect turnout or could that affect turnout in, in a state as diverse as yours? Look, I think diversity and representation matter, but I also think that diverse ideas matter, that when you look at someone like why I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are also 
and especially Bernie Sanders leading a lot with voters of color. He actually has a very cross-racial coalition um, because he's speaking to the needs. He, he leads among Latino voters right. here in uh, California. Yes. So I think that you need to speak to the needs that diverse and lived experience matter, but only insofar as they lead you to policy solutions that actually represent the needs of those communities. So I have always been willing to support the white man over uh, the brown woman, if that's the case, if his solutions were better for my community. That being said, I do believe that you need a diverse set of experiences in our democracy because often they do lead you to different perspectives. Um, You know, in this race, for example, I am not the chosen candidate out of Washington, D.C. No one in Washington asked me to run. I was asked to run by some of our state's largest progressive leaders, people that are from Texas. And I was encouraged by some donors to not run. What did they say to you? um, That they didn't think I could win, that I was too progressive. And, you know, and the ironic thing is that in Texas, everybody knows you do not win without Latino voters. No Democrat wins without us. And yet you have a dynamic you know, they'll tell me I'm articulate candidate, right? Ouch. I'm, I'm <laughs> clean and articulate. Clean and articulate. Yeah, but. Uh, um, hey, well, but I'm an articulate. Right, so. That knows policy. <laughs> right. And he, got, he may have gotten elected. Yeah. yeah. So, but knows policy really well, knows our state really well, has all of the progressive institutions behind her in the state. And yet they think that I am not electable and they're willing to get behind candidates to do not reflect the diversity of our state. And it wouldn't bother me if their ideas actually represented the needs of our communities, but their lived experiences have taken them to a different place. Um, and they don't understand the diversity. They don't understand our needs. And I, because of that, I don't think they can win, which um, is why I'm running. Uh, a, a fun fact. So you're going to be off to doing some fundraising today. A fun fact. We were talking about this just before you came on. Beto O'Rourke in 26 is 2018 raised more money from California than did Incumbent Senator Dianne Feinstein raised from California. He raised $5.5 million. even more contributions, 24,000 contributions from California. Uh, and Feinstein raised $4.2 million from 7,000. Now, of course, she has a lot of money in the bank. You know, money is an issue for her. What does that, what's that say? Was it, uh, the Californians love Texas, as they should. <laughs> no, um, I don't, let's not get crazy here. But no, but I, th- <laughs> you know, I think what's exciting about Texas is you have a state whose demographics very much match California. I think that we are at the place in our state where California was in the 90s with Proposition 187. We also just passed in 2017 a historic anti-immigrant, anti-Latino piece of legislation, SB4, um, a show me your papers law in our state. Um, And so I think people see that there is a rising electorate in our state, a diverse electorate that and our current representatives do not reflect that. And so, you know, you all changed California. You think, why not change Texas? And we welcome you to come <laughs> to contribute and help us do that. Okay. Christina Sintun Ramirez, thank you for being on It's All Political. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Christina for coming in to San Francisco for the podcast. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, and the great one, Karen Creighton, for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you're from Texas or you just try to avoid the place, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, 
subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garifoli. Thanks.